Welcome to the Design Matters podcast, where we discuss popular topics and new ideas in design. Our student hosts look to create insightful conversations with today's leaders of design in the built environment. My name is John Bazook. I'm an architecture student with the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture. I'm Emily Kang, a student with the Landscape Architecture Program at the University of Calgary. Today's episode is with Chip Sullivan and Elizabeth Boltz, the landscape architects who co-authored the book Illustrated History of Landscape Design, which uses a combination of timelines and storyboards to visually narrate landscape architecture history. Elizabeth Boltz has been teaching at UC Davis since 2004. Her teachings encompass landscape representation, site design, theory, and the history of the built environment. Her various professional projects include landscape revitalization, drought-tolerant planting design for large-scale estates, and landscape renovation of historically significant properties. Chip Sullivan is a professor at UC Berkeley and has devoted his career to promoting landscape architecture as an art. He lectures on the philosophy and application of sustainable design using art and ecology, Chip is lectured and exhibited his work around the world. What you're about to hear is our conversation we had with Chip and Liz before their Design Matters lecture series. Let's have a listen. Hi, Chip. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you doing today? Great to be here. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you for coming to Calgary. Um, You must have just flown in a couple, couple hours ago. Now, have you been to Calgary before? Well, if you come to the lecture, you'll see that we have been through Alberta, but not to Calgary. Okay. Through Alberta, but not to Calgary. Because we took the train from Vancouver to Toronto. Oh, wow. lovely, through the Rockies. Yeah, I've actually never phenomenal. done that before. It's very beautiful because it, it takes its own phenomenal. route through the mountains, you right? You need to do it. And I guess decades ago, it did go through Calgary, but now it goes up to Edmonton and over. But there's up a naturalist on the, on the train with you, so we learned about the Canadian Rockies oh, and the prairie, beautiful. the Canadian Shield. Excellent. Yeah. The lakes, it was just it Gorgeous. was just great. But yes, this is our first time in Calgary. Perfect. Um, so you did just come up with a book recently, and then Chip, you have come up with one previously, the cartooning the landscape, and the more recently that the two of you came up with is the illustrated history of landscape design, another gorgeous hand-drawn illustrated uh, book. So we kind of wanted to start off this conversation a little bit talking with those two. What a better place to start. Well, I can kind of give a a background how the illustrated history of landscape design came about in that um, I'm sort of, my father was a cartoonist, a frustrated cartoonist because he, the World War II started, he had to go into the uh, Marine Corps. So I always admired his cartooning. I always thought I was going to be working for Disney or, you know, cartooning. I went into landscape because it emphasized drawing. But I guess, I don't know how many years ago, I was doing a series for Landscape Architecture Magazine on um, creative thinking, which was comic three-page, three- and four-page comic strips. And um, my, my goal kind of was always to turn that into a book, but it was my first experience in doing um, kind of sequential narratives. At the, as that series was winding down, Liz uh, got the opportunity to teach the history class, landscape history class at Davis. And I'll let you explain how the segue happened there. Well, it's a large lecture. It's a general ed class. I was, of course, I've taken history classes, but I was new to teaching history, and it just sort of, it, it clicked a little clicked bit. Clicked with me. Right. It was. I loved the content. Um, I loved that class. 
And I worked so hard to get these lectures together because we're <laughs> on a 10-week quarter system. Right. And it's all of landscape history from prehistory to yesterday, you know. So I was like, holy cow, I was up till 2 in the morning and getting my lectures. And then Chip had published Drawing the Landscape and had a good relationship with a publisher and was like, let's, let's do a book in landscape history. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> He was being persistent. Well, we were at the, uh, a conference, and Margaret Cummings, my editor at at Wiley, was there, and I saw her. And this is where I I looked at Liz and I said, Liz, I got a great idea. Let's do the first graphic novel history of landscape architecture. Gorgeous. And Chip, history is not a novel. <laughs> well, history is not fiction. But if we but visualize actually, it, right? Yeah, maybe <laughs> history. Liz is, Elizabeth keeps telling fiction. me that all the time, but. <laughs> But she was really hesitant. I said, let's, you know, like, and I, I kind of like, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have done this, but I went ahead and I pitched the idea. And uh, Margaret goes, well, that sounds, that sounds interesting. Why don't you take a couple months and uh, write, up, write up a proposal and we'll, we'll take a look at it widely. When we got back, we were, we, were, we were back at Berkeley and a week later, Margaret calls us up and she goes, you know, the more I thought about that, I think it's, we think it's a really good idea. Can you guys put together a book proposal in a week? In a week, and write a sample chapter. Oh, my goodness. Well, not just write, but like illustrated the whole, yeah, wow. Wow. So, like, we went, no, but we'll do it. Right. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. how often do you have an opportunity like that? Yeah. And that, that right. kind of started that whole thing of um, my aspect of kind of like the, the background I had in doing these visual narratives for Landscape Architecture magazine kind of gave us the um, kind of the kind of how we steered the the. the and yeah, luckily we were on sabbatical and we got a fellowship at the McDowell Colony, which is sort of a writers and artists colony in New Hampshire. And it was just 14 hour days for a good four months. Wow. Working on that. It was a yeah. really it was really fun because I my drafting table was next to Liz's typewriter and she would pitch <laughs> ideas to me and I'd illustrate them or I'd do a drawing and then I'd, I'd pitch it to Liz and, and it was like just this incredible collaborative uh, kind of effort. And one of the interesting things that I find when we talk about the book that we did the book together, yeah. people always go and you're still together. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're always like they they always seem to want to know like how did you how did you manage to to get along? But it was a yeah. real collaborative thing. I mean, yeah. it was just a most wonderful thing that I, I think I've ever done. And I think of the book as like an A plus student's notebook because it's very it's not very deep into any one subject matter. It's very very broad in right. scope, but it presents things in a way. This is why we chose to do the hand drawings and not use photography because I think watching someone draw or mm -hmm. looking at hand-drawn work, right. especially plans, is very accessible. You know, Makes you it feel a bit more tangible, of, right? Yes, yeah. you can get into it visually. Yes, yeah, sort of adapting. You can see the hand motions with it, whereas the photography of, mm -hmm. of a landscape or something is just a different... Narrative, more or less. And everybody right? says, yeah. why didn't you color it? But that's like, it's, coloring books are all the rage now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it can become one. Yeah, yeah. go ahead and color it. Things. Chip, what can you tell me about uh, Carlos Castaneda? Carlos Castaneda's Teachings of Don Juan was one of those books that really, really affected me in that it kind of opened me up to this idea of looking and seeing nature, because that's one of the things that fed into my whole philosophy of teaching drawing, which a drawing is just not about replicating what you're looking at, but it's a form of consciousness. It's a form of kind of moving yourself to a higher level of understanding right. and seeing. Because you probably, both of you have probably been in the studio and yeah. you're drawing, and all of a sudden the sun's coming up, 
where did that time go? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's what it's about. You're in a different zone. You yes. know, you're in a creative zone. Right. So uh, Castaneda's work kind of influenced me on that. And it also inspired me to, after I graduated, to go out into the Southwest and look for a mentor like that. And of course, I spent four months in the desert and didn't find 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 a person like that. So his novels and his and his, his written work. I mean, a lot of it. He is, it was very visual, visual as well. Or is it more like photography based? Or did he do a lot of like illustration works as well? Oh, or it's it's about Carlos Castaneda's writing his PhD right in anthropology, and he's interested in medicinal plants. Okay. And uh, someone tells him to go to the Sonoran Desert, and that there is this Indian, the Sonoran Indian that um, is, knows something about plants. And Carlos goes and meets this guy at the bus station, and um, it didn't go very well, but the guy said, when you have a chance, come out and visit me in, the, in Mexico in the Sonoran Desert. And that was the start of this the shamanistic mentor, mentor-protege kind of relationship on kind of learning to see and kind of like finding your way to higher consciousness. But as you know, that sort of philosophy has a lot to do with like looking at nature and understanding nature and kind of seeing the hidden networks and flows of nature. Um, it's kind of like, that's kind of what I got out of it. And whether whether the books are true or not, whether they're fiction, it's, it, it to me, it doesn't matter. It just had such an effect on me that it changed, it changed so it's my a, life. So it's about a vision quest, not so yeah. much, it's not a visual book. Right. It's yeah. a journey. Searching. As one might yeah. say. That's, that's interesting that you bring up that like, he's talking to someone from the that's from the Sonora, because like, what we're doing right now in our urban design studio, we have people from the Sutina Nation coming here. We just... Yeah, yesterday we actually had uh, two elders come in, and their approach to looking at the landscape is quite different than what mm -hmm. we typically do here. We're like, we're very like scientific in a way. We're yeah. like, identify the plant. Um, what is it for? What conditions does it grow? These are that's really good basic knowledge. Mm -hmm. But they have the way they present information and their respect for the environment is. I'd say a little, it's speaking more to that consciousness that you sort of mentioned yeah. before. You're really, really fortunate to have that sort of connection here. During your um, master's, what, what, what more or less did you focus on? And then how, how more or less did that possibly sort of mm -hmm. changed after you graduated? Because right now, Emily and I are sitting and doing our master's and we're focusing on one direction. Yeah. And we're so super curious how kind of life sort of takes its part, right? Well, during my undergraduate degree, that was uh, the time of the first huge energy crisis, right. the oil embargo. And I started to look at landscape architecture, how we could uh, use it as a pa create passive designs and reduce our dependency on foreign oil. So I was really interested in how landscape architecture can can segue into that. And the other thing that um, while I was at the University of Florida, there was a professor called Howard, Howard Odom who wrote a book called Energy, Power, and Society. And he was looking at the hidden flows of nature by tracing the sun's flow of energy through ecosystems, giving a kilocalorie value to those things so he could actually evaluate the energy production for each ecosystem. Oh, that's amazing. So that's one of the reasons I stayed to get my master's was so I could spend some time Learned through that. learning to him. Yeah. And that, that was kind of like, I knew I wanted to eventually write books and I knew I was interested. And that kind of set me off on my path of, you know, you go to one door, it opens many other doors. Right. But that right. was my focus when, when I was in college time. Your turn, Liz. So I also, I also start with bad grades. No. <laughs> um, I had a very inspiring high school biology teacher. Excellent. So I wanted to do science education. I wanted to teach high school biology. I went to a state college in New York 
freshman year, got a D in organic chemistry and a D in algebra. I'm like, I guess I'm not going to be a science teacher. Right. <laughs> so I actually majored in uh, nutrition and dietetics. Okay. What? Okay. Worked, um, worked in hospitals. I graduated, worked in the hospital. And I've always loved art. I always loved art history. I loved to draw. I would, I would sit in my office in the hospital and read art history right. books and study design right. principles. And my sister had a friend who was going to architecture school, and it was the Boston Architectural Center, which is like a work-study curriculum. And I said, architecture is it. This is great. It's art and it's science. Now, I'm a first-generation college student. I didn't know any architects. I didn't know anything about, like, what architecture school would be you know I had this great vision of it all and I did go to uh, the BAC for a couple years but since it's a work-study curriculum I had a job and I loved my job I loved the design business I was living in Boston I was in my 20s life was large I was like this is great Um, I can only go so far without finishing my architectural education and then through project teams I met civil engineers and I met landscape architects and I'm like wait a minute these people are working outside, they're working with processes, it's not just sort of an, an object. I said, okay, I'm going to apply to grad school, but only on the West Coast. I just need a change. And I applied to Berkeley, was my first choice, and gosh, they accepted me. And I hey, there you go. It. And, uh, and also, it was life-changing. I absolutely, I just loved it. It was every day, every class was, I'm learning something new. It was so incredible. I was also financially struggling, so I was a teaching assistant, a research oh, assistant. so you were a student, right? I worked, <laughs> I worked in the dean's office. I worked at the Gap, and I was right. like, I'm missing school so to yeah. go to work to pay for school. Something's not right there. Mm-hmm. But I was a teaching assistant, and I was like, I'm going back to my original plan of like being a teacher. Right, so you right? saw that I window, know. and you were like, I could do this as a, yeah. And I really, my, my goal was to do high-end residential design as a landscape <laughs> architect, but I um, applied for a teaching job right out of grad school at, at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, it's a great program, and that was a one-year position, and then I was hooked. I was and like, they, this they is they the just career. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that, that was a one-year position, I sort of traveled around um, the country and then came back to California, and have been at Davis now for 15 years, and I, I just love it. Every class, I can't wait. We're, we're not starting till the end of September, and I just can't wait for the first day of school. How important is it when you teach your students to either start with the drawing or not, or move just directly into the, to the digital age? Or what have you two seen in terms of maybe design practice and thinking? Yeah, just kicking out the creative process. Well, I mean, for me, the, the what, why I see drawing is important. It's it's the direct hand contact 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 with your subconscious mind. It's the first impression. Um, you really learn by that physicality of drawing, and you know, also drawing as a way of interpreting what you're seeing. There's just a certain spontaneity to drawing that I think is is really really important. I think it's. Um, I think it's I think it's absolutely important that it's a foundation learning experience because it allows you to see the environment, look at the environment, interpret it, develop a visual vocabulary, and then kind of like uh, you have to be able to draw to be able to use the computer. Exactly. And uh, also the way I see things happening is with tablets. You know, if you can't draw, you can't use a tablet. And tablets are becoming more and more, I mean, better, better design, better and easier and easier to use. But if you can't draw can't use a tablet so you have so I'm seeing a kind of sort of this irony of drawing courses kind of being eliminated or downplayed but um, becoming stronger and stronger thing so I think wow. in order to 
of course, professionally, it's all digital tools, but you have to understand the concept of a plan and a section elevation. Otherwise, you're just learning to use a program with not really understanding the, the purpose behind it. How do you find working with other disciplines in your practices? Good question. Right now I do consulting for other people and it's really conceptual and it's design work. So um, I don't need to do CD sets or anything like that. So it's a lot of sketching and a lot of drawing by hand. Um, for Gary Strang's office, I was brought in at uh, the point where they were batting ideas around. We'd sit around like a table like this and someone would pitch an idea and I would draw it up and we'd pin it up. And so I was sort of visualizing and it was sort of like, it was kind of like jazz, you know, right. kind of jamming, you know, right. drawing jam session. And that's that's something I, I really enjoyed. That was sort of my, as a, because as a teacher, you don't have to, you know, like the, you have the luxury of kind of selecting what you what kind of work you want to do. We both worked for a high-end landscape architect who did residential design for uh, we worked there for together for maybe 10 to five, 10 years where were those jobs in local to uh, the u.s or were they yeah they were on the peninsula so south san francisco a lot to silicon do valley what kind of okay. what kind of projects of were those like uh, it was kind of public exciting or? you know it was kind of exciting because it was during the dot-com boom so everybody was making a ton of money and what's interesting to me, it's kind of like similar, if you look at societies, the first thing that a society does when, when, they're in, they, when they become flush with money, they start to make a lot of money, usually the first things they do is build a big house, <laughs> then they build a garden, and then they start to collect art. It's an interesting phenomenon, and there was a brief moment in history we got to experience that in the, in the peninsula, in, in the Bay Area, before the dot-com boom. I think mm -hmm. I must have done over 200 gardens. So it's an interesting phenomena, um, wow. and like what people do when they start to ga gather a lot of money, they right. build a big house and then they want to build a garden, right. or they start collecting sculpture and then they want a place to put the sculpture, or they already have the art and then they want a place to put it. So uh, it's kind of an interesting phenomena. So I kind of want to just shift gears a little bit. So you've done a lot of work in the private realm, by mm -hmm. the sounds of it. Have you guys done a lot of work in like for public works? I did when I was working in architecture. It was public schools and libraries, and you probably did when you were at Sasaki. Yeah, when I was at Sasaki, we did. I, I was doing mostly large-scale master planning, uh, rooftop gardens, urban planning, urban design, things along along that. Then when I my, but my major goal always was to do um, environmental installations. So when I started to uh, teach, that gave me the opportunity to start to do these kind of small-scale temporary installations, which are always about viewing the landscape, or like increasing, you know, clod mirrors or optical devices or you know, um, panorama scopes and stuff like that that would make make the environment, make people, the visitor, more aware of their surroundings. So that was a, a major focus for a number of years. You know, my baby steps into landscape architecture. There does seem to be a lot of, you know, there's the heavy ecology component, the architecture art component, and I constantly feel like one may be tugging more than the other. And, you know, there's, there's like, there's, I don't want to say a conflict, but there is some sort of relationship there that I feel like is often one is emphasized mm -hmm. more than the other. And what I was going to ask, like, you know, do you choose to, like, when do you choose to emphasize one or the other? How would you resolve that kind of tension? Or do you keep it? Well, I think that that's, that's the benefit of doing um, landscape architecture as art, where you have plazas, you can, you can, you can, you can be 
kind of a gorilla like you know like you can kind of go underneath and put your meaning in the in the landscape and then the client doesn't have to know it I mean so like if you have <laughs> environmental issues that's what I tell my students all the time make sure the landscape has a meaning you know so like it could be an art piece but that art piece can have political environmental ecological messages you know that's why I think what we do that's why I say it should be an art form and an environmental piece and a political piece that you can pull all these things together in a space and raise people's awareness in, in our landscape designs. And you know, your clients and your teachers don't have to know what you're doing. You can slide these things in here. So the, you know, the, the best landscapes aren't, aren't obvious. And I think that's what's unique about landscape architecture, really, as a discipline and as a profession. It would be irresponsible not to address climate change. I mean, that's an imperative. You have to think ecologically, mm -hmm. but it's an art form. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, you're just engineers or you're dealing with environmental issues like you're saying Emily but we're bringing the art to it mm -hmm. yeah I did I had a prof talk about that the other day I mean this is architecture if I may um, <laughs> uh, he, he was saying he was very blunt about it he said you know how many of you are, are going to do something with sustainability and climate change when you go and become architects you know how you know most of the class put their hand in as well all of you must have your hand up right now because if you don't you're going to be redundant. They're going to move past you. They're going to move to the architect, architect that does. So Calgary here, we're, we're pretty arid, uh, generally speaking. And a bit more on the technical side, aside from just picking drought-tolerant plants, like what would you recommend for the designers here to kind of think about uh, when we're dealing with this sporadic water scarcity problem? problem that we have in an arid climate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, like if you go back to Oda, Howard Odom, you know, one of the things that he was looking for was like, we called it closing the loop. Now you'd call it sustainability, you know, like that you would, you know, like the, the, the site that you design is self-contained. It's producing all the energy that's being used and recycling. And that's kind of like what we were doing. And that's kind of what I think sustainability is. And I think, you know, like part part of what we what we're trying to teach in California is every drop of water that hits the earth should be saved. You know, half of our water in a rainstorm goes into the bay. You know, so like, why aren't we saving the water? You know, why aren't we designing the landscapes to store the water? And then, uh, I also like this element of one of the reasons I like steampunk <laughs> is because it's making it's showing infrastructure. That's how things work. Like that's the difference between a steam engine and uh, an Apple computer. Uh, you can see how a steam engine works, but you know how your cell phone works. Right. And I think part of this thing that I like about landscape as infrastructure is that we're part of that is we're bringing, you know, all of the infrastructure is underground. What happens if we could see how much water? Where, where the like tangible, going? visually, yeah, see ta it, right. tangibly make those things, things work and see how they work, and that becomes part of the part of the landscape. So it's all balanced. And I think plants, yeah, like where, where do you, where do, where do plants fit in on that? And um, I think if we just go back to, the, you know, like that's why I like vernacular, understanding the vernacular. What was here first? Developing, yeah, yeah and going back to that, right, yeah. Make, yeah, making these systems yeah. legible so people can learn from them. Sites, the Sustainable Sites Initiative was from ASLA, I think actually with the University of Texas a while back. So it's like LEED, but for, right. for, arch for landscape architecture. Yeah. And those have some really good metrics that you can apply and goals that you can weave into your project. And I think it's a two-way street. I think our students demand it or they're automatically thinking about Good. it it's almost like you know we've sort of always yeah put they read the, the news too <laughs> they uh you know they come from a from that angle and i think in california a lot of our students are really interested in sustainable 
agriculture. So in Calgary, we I'll, I'll have you have a peek here. It's black and white, but so you might have seen this from the plane. The photo is a shot of Google Earth from Deerfoot. So Deerfoot is a four-lane highway, and it's on either side of it. Uh, it's got some pretty big backsloping, big mounds of lawn. So that's one way to do. Um, a buffer zone between a highway and uh, surrounding neighborhoods. Well, what what do you think is a, maybe a, a better way to approach that kind of fairly barren landscape? There is a book that one of the books that really affected me when I was in school is Plants, People, and Environmental Quality. And I think one of the things is that those cars are producing a lot of pollution, air pollution, and even the rubber tires are floating up in the space. And I think one of the first things you'd want to do is try to uh, plant uh, high, uh, trees that produce high quantities of oxygen and have um, very textured leaf forms to filter out the air. You know, so I'd see it as an you know trying to be, trying to negate the horrid effects of uh, mass transit. There's also some new materials out there like smog eating concrete and. And what do we know? What's the most beautiful road to drive down? Is like a two-lane tree-lined street. Is nothing is more beautiful than that. But you get the highway engineers, the first thing they want to do is cut down the trees and put them like 50, 50 feet. So they tried to come up with this thing as the downslope would be mowed and the upslope could have trees. But the downslope, they tried to plant um, native flowers, you know, native plants and stuff, and, and not mow it. Plant, you know, create plants that can kind of take care of it themselves. Yeah. I think lastly, you could just sort of challenge the whole idea of having the freeway there in the first place. And if you made communities where you didn't have to go 80 miles per hour. Landscape architecture is infamously known for being one of the last disciplines to be brought into the design. Could you make a case for landscape architecture to be at the table at the beginning? In order to make these changes that we want to do, landscape architects have to be at the planning stage. One of the reasons I went into planning, urban design, regional planning, was to be at the top, you know, and kind of direct how architecture might be cited, um, kind of to reduce energy consumption, you know, to kind of create those energy kind of balances and stuff. So, And know. how many times have we been given a site plan and told to shrub it up? And I'm like, but yeah. your building is in the floodplain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your door is I not there, do at any. the elevation of the, the slope there. <laughs> yes. From the architecture, I guess, point of view, I mean, of course, I, I agree, but it's just not my profession. It's just not what I've, I've been looking at. But I mean, at the end of the day, you sit in your living room and you design your apertures accordingly. But what do you look when you're outside, you know? So why not design them at the same time? So when you have your windows to actually look at something pleasing that was a part of the landscape and a part of the, the design from the, from the get-go. What are you reading right now? Any, anything in particular? Well, I'm reading a book called Chrysalis about um, um, Marion, who was the first woman to sort of study um, insect evolution and transformation and metamorphosis. It's a book about metamorphosis, mm -hmm. so in a scientific and then also sort of a, you know, abstract way, and I'm enjoying that. Neil Stevenson is one of my favorite authors, and I just finished reading, I think it's the dodo bird i think it's called the rise and fall of dodo and uh, but it's about time travel and that it's kind of interesting that at the industrial revolution uh magic existed and then when science came along it conquered magic disappeared and in the present day these people create a time machine to go back and bring witches into the present day to kind of fix that so magic oh. can still exist so magic 
according before the scientific revolution was just as common as right. anything else. Right. And I think that is kind of because to me, it, design is magic. You know, it's it's uh, you know, and it's also it's a sacrament because you know it's like can you define love? Can you just define the creative process? You can't. You know, so it's kind of like where we're starting to go with this is kind of like how can we. Uh, th there's a bigger world that we need to bring into landscape, which we're kind of, with the technology, we're kind of missing the, the point. We're, we're getting away from the genus loci. The basic fundamental thing of landscape architecture is the spirit of the place. We wanted to really kind of end every one of these episodes with a tough question. So if you can, uh, why does design matter? It's everything. It's when you get up in the morning and pick your pair of shoes you're going to wear to, to go on the street. I mean, design, design is everything. You're, you're, design, you're designing your outfits. You're, you're constantly thinking about the design process, I think, is the essence of understanding creativity. You know, it's, it's the outcome of the creative process. It's the, it's the only way we're going to be able to change the, the, this horrible situation we've backed ourselves into. It's the opposite of chaos. Cosmos, cosmology. That's not bad. I like that. <laughs> well, thank you very much today. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. This was fun. Good. Today's episode was produced by John Bazook and Emily Kang in partnership with CJSW. Research was done by John Bazook and Emily Kang. Music by Vikram Johal. Credits read by Shelby Christensen. Special thanks to Vita Long, Matt Napick, and Jess Alder and to the University of Calgary's School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture for all their support. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening today. And if you're looking for more information about our guests today and the Design Matters Lecture Series, you can head over to our website at sapl.ucalgary.ca. Hey, wait, wait, no, this is good Big stuff. This is good stuff. Cabinet of Calgary. Cabinet of Calgary.